significance, where would you look? Well, you probably would not want to look at our culture that is tending to rewrite history, is denying that these things even took place, in some cases even denying that Jesus actually existed. You wouldn't want to look to, to many churches that, that have forgotten the cross of Christ, that have forgotten that who Jesus really is and, and who have been loosed from the moorings of the true and only gospel. You wouldn't want to look to your own mind because your mind is, is weak and it's frail and you cannot comprehend these things apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. We know that in order to understand these things, we need to look to God's Word. We need to look to God's Word dependent on God's work in our hearts to reveal these truths to us. That was true in your salvation. And, and even though we have been born again, even though we, we have been given the Holy Spirit, we, we still need the Spirit to remind us of these things, that we are desperate for God to work in our hearts according to His Word by His Spirit. If you're going to look at God's Word to understand these things, most of us would probably be drawn first to the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each gives an account of what took place on Calvary 2,000 years ago. You could also go to the book of Acts. The, the chronicles, the, where Luke chronicles the birth of the church and the spread of the gospel. You can see there in Acts how the salvation of sinners is always linked to the proclamation of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You could go to the letters of, of Paul or Peter or, or Hebrews or, or John, and each of them includes vital details of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and what it means. But this morning, we're not going to look at any of those places. This morning, we're going to look to the Old Testament. This morning, we're going to look to the book of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. And as we look, look at this passage this morning, this morning, we're only going to go as far as, as verse 9, and then, Lord willing, on Sunday, we'll come back and, and look at verses 10 to 12. But, but as you consider these things, as we consider these things together, we need to remember that this was written 700 years before the incarnation of Christ. Isaiah writes these things as though he was physically there, as though he was present. Because the Holy Spirit was, was testifying to these things in his heart, just as he is to us in our hearts this morning. This passage, Isaiah 53, 52, 13 to 53, 12, is, is arguably the, the greatest and clearest prophecy of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the, in the, apart from what you see in the Gospels. The last three verses of chapter 52 uh, and, and into chapter 53 are, are it's really part of one unified passage. They, they go together. We need to remember that the chapters and the verses were added long after the original manuscripts were written, that, that the, the chapter breaks were, were added in the 13th century, and the verse numbers in the 16th century. And, and although the, these chapter breaks and verses can be helpful, they can, also be, they can also mislead us and cause us to miss what God's Word is saying in its context. 
But in order to understand this passage, and in order to understand its wider context, we need to just briefly look at, at the book of Isaiah and, and why it was written. This was a, was a prophecy written over, over several decades, from around 740 to 680 B.C. The main thrust of this book is that the people of God are guilty, the people of Israel are guilty, and that God is going to bring down judgment with the purpose of bringing a remnant to repentance. God is going to save His people by His grace, and He's going to set them up as a beacon of light for the whole world to see. That is the message of Isaiah. Now, judgment in the book of, of Isaiah takes place through the, through the, in the immediate context through the invasion by her enemies, through the invasion of, of Assyria in the days of the prophet, and then Babylon, and that's going to take place in the near future. But both of these judgments, as horrific as they were, 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 they were far more horrific in what they represented in the judgment of God. The Lord was punishing His people for their sins. Now this historical context really covers the first two-thirds of the book, but in, in chapter 40, hope dawns, where we see deliverance promised for God's people. God is saying, I am going to deliver my people, I am going to pardon her sins. And this theme is repeated in each of, of the four of what is known as the servant songs. And, and this passage, Isaiah 52, 13-53, 12, is the fourth of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Each of these songs represents the, what God's special servant, His chosen one, the Messiah, who is going to bring salvation to His people. He is humble and gentle. He is without guilt, yet He, yet he suffers for the sins of His people. And in this passage, this fourth of the servant songs, the, the songs really reach their crescendo. This is really the, the high mark of all of these songs, is, is for the first time we can begin to see what the Lord is doing. And who this servant is. So in Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, it, it, it spoke a vital message to the people to whom it was written. And today, 2,700 years after it was written, it still speaks. It still speaks. Stanza 1 is, we, we see the... We see God speaking in 52, 13 to 15. In stanza 2, we see the witnesses speaking from 53, 1 to 3. Stanza 3, we see the redeemed speaking from 53, 4 to 6. And the crucifixion speaks in stanza 4 from 53, 7 to 9. And on Sunday, as I said, we're going to look at stanza 5, which is 53, verses 12, so 10 to 12, where the resurrection speaks. So first of all, in stanza 1, 52, 13 to 15, God speaks. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall it sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. 
This command in 52.13 is, is the last in a, in a series of commands that goes all the way back to the beginning of chapter 51. The commands are, are listen, look, pay attention, awake. And now in verse 13 of chapter 52, behold. Well, when someone is giving you a command, it would do you well to understand who is the one who is doing the commanding. Whose voice is this? Who is the one who is speaking? It is the Lord God. And of course, whenever God's word speaks, it is God himself who is speaking. But, but in this particular context, there is a particular significance to God's speech because he is bearing testimony. He is bearing testimony to the servant, to his righteous servant. This is God the Father bearing testimony to the person and the work of his son. He is my servant. Our Lord Jesus Christ is repeatedly described as a servant throughout the scriptures. And he even describes himself that way. He says in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to, serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He explains in John 6.38 that he came not to do his own will, but to, to do his Father's will. He is a servant. And not only do we have the, the passage before us, but, but he is introduced in, in the first of the servant songs with these words, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. This is the perfect praise of God the Father for his perfect Son. And now, the, the, again, the importance of these words stems from the one who's speaking. And this, is, this is God himself. This is the highest praise that, that anybody can be given when, when God gives highest praise for God. And here in, in uh, verse 13 of chapter 52, not only is his service for God highlighted, he is praised. He himself is praised for his wisdom. And, he, and the Lord says of him, he shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. This is the highest praise from the highest power. But it's important to note that these words of praise for, for wisdom and for lifting up and for exaltation are, are all used elsewhere in Isaiah to describe the glory of God. Probably most strikingly in Isaiah chapter 6. We see holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory in verse 3. But look back at verse 1. It's the Lord upon a throne, high and lifted up. High and lifted up, the same words that we see in Isaiah 52. The, the Lord himself here is lifting up his son, his servant. But in the next verse, in, in verse 14, there's a, a dreadful turn of events. His appearance is now astonishing, we see here. This word also means appalled. The servant of the Lord, who is so highly exalted, is brought down low, as low as a human being can go. This is the servant of the Lord, though he's equal with God, Philippians 2, 6. He became obedient to the point of death, 
Philippians 2.8, and he is disgusting to look at. He was beaten so badly that he's barely even recognizable as a human being. The gospel accounts tell the story. We heard some of it this morning already. Remember from Luke 23. He was disrobed. He was tied to a stake. A Roman soldier would take a flagrum, which is a, a whip made of several thongs to, with, with bits of metal and bone attached to it. And he would use this whip to cleave the flesh from the back of his victim. They plucked out his beard. They beat his body and his face mercilessly. They, they mockingly placed a crown of thorns on his head and then, and then struck the crown so that the inch-long thorns would, would drive deep into his scalp so that, that he was, was a, a mass of blood and gore from head to foot. And that's only the beginning. Who did this to him? Man. This was men. Judas betrayed him. Caiaphas questioned him. Pilate tried him. The Jews rejected him. The soldiers tortured him. His disciples deserted him. But they are not the only ones who are responsible. Hear me on this. It is not merely men. It's not merely those men who are responsible for this horrific torture. But just as they aren't the only ones who are, who are responsible, the servant is, is also not the only one who will be treated in this way. Christians all around the world are suffering as they follow in the footsteps of Christ. They're suffering today. And brothers and sisters, if the Lord tarries, if the Lord does not come back in our lifetimes, many of us here will likely suffer as well. Persecution is, is very likely coming in this country. So we need to look to what Christ suffered for us to understand that our only hope is in Him. These things were, were, were incomprehensible. But with verse 15, we begin to see what's going on. The reason is it's becoming to be in unveiled. And verse 15 really corresponds to verse 14. Just as many were astonished at the horrors of what was going on in verse 14, in verse 15 we see that many nations will be sprinkled. The blood that spattered from the torture of our Lord will sprinkle many nations, many peoples. In fact, it would sprinkle people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Revelation 5, 9. And now kings will shut their mouths because of him as the horror of his suffering gives way to amazement over what he has done. What has not been told previously will now speak to them. They will see and they will understand. 
Then with stanza 2 in 53, 1 to 3, the witnesses speak. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. With 53 verse 1, there's a change in speaker. These are the witnesses who had once rejected Christ. None of them would believe who he was. No one could believe who he was apart from divine revelation, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit bringing the word of God to bear in their hearts. And likewise for us, neither could we understand unless that same Holy Spirit brings this same word to our hearts. We all naturally judge according to human understanding. We're like these witnesses who, who, apart from God's work, could only see Him from their human perspective. And to them it made no sense whatsoever. Verse 2, He was a, like a young plant growing from, from dry ground. Thinking back to His humble beginnings. Born in a manger to insignificant parents. He had no form or majesty. He had no beauty. He didn't look like a king. He just looked like an average Middle Eastern Jew. Verse 3, we see him despised and rejected by men. He was mocked. He was spit upon. His own people rejected him and chose Barabbas, a murderer, instead. He was rejected, even by his own followers. Peter, their leader, denied him three times, even with a curse. And Judas betrayed him to the, to the, the, to the Pharisees. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. Now, now this doesn't mean that, that he was depressed. It, it means that, that he was suffering greatly. He was suffering more so than any human being has ever suffered and more than any other human being will ever suffer. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But he wasn't just despised and rejected by them at that time. There was a time when you also despised and rejected Jesus. Now maybe you didn't, didn't verbally mock him or, or spit on him. But by the way you lived your life, you were despising Jesus. In your rebellion, in my rebellion, we all despised Jesus. And so like I said earlier, it's not just those who were present at that time who were responsible for the death of Jesus. We are all responsible for the death of Jesus. We sang that in the, in the hymn, The Look. That we would look on the one that, that we crucified. We are just as guilty of, of the, the death of Jesus as though we had been there physically. 
that the Dutch painter Van Gogh, when he painted the crucifixion scene, he painted his own face in the crowd. He was taking responsibility for his part in the crucifixion of Jesus. I wonder, as you sit here this morning, are you taking responsibility for the crucifixion of Jesus? Because if you are not, then you have no part in the crucifixion of Jesus. We are all guilty. This is the, the, the greatest sin that we have ever committed, is the rejection of Jesus. And we all did it. For all of our lives, apart from His saving work in our hearts. I wonder, as you sit here this morning, are you rejecting him still? Are you one who is still dead in your trespasses and sins? Or are you one who has turned from your trespasses and sins and received and embraced Jesus, not just as a Savior, but as a Lord? Because if he is not your, your Lord, he is not your Savior. Is he the Lord of your life? Can you say with, with Paul from 2 Corinthians 5.16? From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Do you no longer regard Christ according to the flesh? Are you no longer looking with with worldly wisdom, with human eyes? Or are you instead looking at Him as one who has had the eyes of your hearts enlightened by the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart? Whenever you thought of Christ before, as a good man, as a, as a wise teacher, or even as, as inconsequential, or as a liar, or as a fiction, Whatever you once regarded Christ as, you regard Him thus no longer. He is now in your heart and your mind. He is Jesus Christ. He is who He is. He is the Messiah. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. And again, this is not just a, a mental ascension to a series of facts. This is an embracing of Him personally. He is your Lord. He is your Savior. And if that is true of you, then these next words, the words of the redeemed, are also your words. Stanza 3, Isaiah 54, 4 to 6, the redeemed speak. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet he has seen the by God and the truth. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now we begin to see the ultimate service of the servant of the Lord. All of these things that he did, he did for his people, but he did ultimately for his Father. This passage has to be one of, one of the highlights of the entire Bible. You need to memorize Isaiah 53, 4-6 and, and preach it to yourself daily. This is the refrain of, of the people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. 
This is, this is a people who, who did not understand, but now understand. Now it's, it's beginning to make sense that, that when he suffered, he did not suffer for his own sins or for any wrongdoing on his own part. He suffered for the sins of others. This is the people who are saying he suffered for our sins. That the suffering that he experienced on the cross was what I deserved. I deserve what he experienced for all eternity. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we thought he was smitten by God, stricken by God, afflicted by God. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says that, that a hanged man is cursed by God. That's why Jews believe. That, that Jesus was not the Messiah because, because of Deuteronomy 21, 23, that, that because a hanged man is cursed by God. That's why Muslims, who, who though they believe that Jesus was righteous, believe that, that a substitute, possibly Judas, took his place on the cross because a man who is hanged is cursed by God. But what they don't understand is that Jesus was cursed by God. He was cursed by God. Paul proves this by quoting Deuteronomy 21-23 and Galatians 3-13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus, who obeyed the law perfectly, was cursed for us. Every moment of every day, he loved his Father with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strength. And every moment, he loved his neighbor as himself. And he's the only one who's ever done this. Friends, you and I, even in our best moments, haven't done this. Because all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. If your righteousness is as filthy rags, what about your sins? We have never for one moment in our lives obeyed God's law, but He obeyed it perfectly from a pure and holy heart. Yet, His Father cursed Him for us. Though the Son was holy and perfect, He became the holy and perfect sacrifice. And all of the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to this event. And the Father poured out His holy wrath in place of His people. This again is the, is the true agony of the cross. The physical sufferings that Jesus experienced, as, as horrific as they, as they were, were nothing compared to this agony. As he was hanging on the cross, he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Mark 15, 34. This is the cry of agony of God the Son, rejected by God the Father, forsaken by God the Father. Brothers and sisters, he did that for us. 
we've seen that yes, men were responsible for the crucifixion. We've seen that those, those who were there, those who did it, those who were present, those who had handed him over, those who had rejected him, they were responsible. We've also seen that we are responsible because it is our sin that, that caused Jesus to have to be crucified. But we, as men and women, are not the only ones who are responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. God himself is responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. We're going to talk about this more on Sunday. But the, the Father pierced the Son for our transgressions. The Father cursed the Son for our iniquities. The Father chastised the Son so that to, in order to buy us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Now, now healed here doesn't, doesn't merely mean just, just physical healing. It's because, because Christians still suffer physical illness and will do so until Christ returns. But, but this is a healing that is, is immeasurably greater. The healing that is in view here is the healing of the spiritual consequences of our sin. Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like stupid, rebellious sheep, all of us turned away from God and his ways. But the Lord has laid all of our sin, all of it, past, present, and future. All of the, the sin of all of his people has been laid on his holy son. What can we say to such great things? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for, for us all, how will not also with him graciously give us all things? Who is to condemn? It was Christ Jesus who died. Christ Jesus died in your place. Fellow Christian, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When your flesh tries to condemn you, preach that to yourself. There is no condemnation. When the accuser tries to preach that to you, preach it back to him. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am in Christ Jesus. There is no more condemnation for me. This is the cry of the redeemed. This is our song, brothers and sisters. He suffered for our sins. On the cross, he carried the bitter consequences of the sins of his people. He did not do this for the nameless, faceless masses of humanity. He did this for his bride. He did this for his elect. For those that he foreknew before the foundation of the world. If he had done this for everyone, if he had suffered for everyone, then everyone would be saved. Because here on the cross where the Father poured out his wrath on his Son, if that is true for everybody, then nobody can be punished by God. But he did this for his people. Out of love for his people out of love for you. Can you speak these words as your own? Can you speak Isaiah 53 verses 4 to 6 as your words? 
Can you say he has borne my griefs? He has carried my sorrows. Can you say that? Can you say that, that he was, was crushed for, for our iniquities and by his stripes I am healed? The redeemed speak. Are you speaking those words to yourself? Are you speaking those words to those around you? In stanza 4, in, in, in 53 verses 7 to 9, and, and this is where we're, we're going to finish this morning, the crucifixion speaks. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the right, uh, rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Well, now we come back to the horrific physical details of the crucifixion. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. If anyone could ever speak a word in his own defense, it was Jesus Christ. He is the only one who could ever go before the judge and plead not guilty. Though he commanded legions of angels, though, though he could have felled his enemies with a word, he meekly allowed his enemies to drag him to the cross. Where the Roman soldiers laid him prostrate on top of the wood. They took a mallet and they drove nine-inch spikes through his wrists and through his ankles. His nerve endings were, and his, his flesh was mutilated. And then the cross was raised to the vertical position with ropes. And there would have been a, a shocking jolt as a cross dropped into the slot prepared for it. It would have been blinding white pain on those nerve endings of his wrists and his ankles. His arms were extended, his legs bent, and so his muscles would, would begin to cramp as he was trying to bear the weight on those spikes. But in order for him to breathe, he would have to actually bear down on those spikes. He would have to push against them. And, and so the, with every breath, there was, was excruciating pain. Death on a cross usually would come over the course of several days as the, the victim slowly suffocated as his life ebbed out. But not this time. Let's not focus only on the physical agonies of the crucifixion. Many had suffered this horrific death, but no one has ever suffered like he suffered. This is Jesus Christ, God the flat in the flesh. This is no mere man. This is no mere physical suffering. Again, the ultimate suffering was that the Father poured out His wrath on Him in our place. Not only do we have a sinless Son of God becoming the sin bearer for His people, but we have the wrath of God poured out on Him for those sins. And we have this, this, this forsaking 
of the Son by the Father. He cried out, I thirst. John 19, 28. And one of them took a sponge, dipped it in a bucket of vinegar, and held it to his mouth. And when he received it, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. He had the power to lay down his life. As we'll see on Sunday, he also had the power to take it up again. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. His generation did not understand that he was cut off from life and that he was stricken for the transgression of his people. They didn't understand that this is why he had to die, to satisfy God's holy justice for his people. Sin requires punishment. And infinite sin requires infinite punishment. So the, for anybody to be forgiven, it required the perfect sacrifice of, of no mere man. It required the sacrifice of the blood of Christ because any one sin that we commit is infinite sin because it is committed against an infinitely holy God. And he received that punishment for his people as the Father's wrath was extinguished for them on him as his life was extinguished. And finally, in verse 9, we see that his, his grave was made with the wicked. There were two robbers, one crucified on one side and one crucified on the other. One of them mocked him, but the other one repented. To him he received the promise, today you will be with me in paradise. But as his lifeless body was taken down from the cross, he was wrapped in a shroud and he was laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy disciple, Matthew 27, 57 to 60. He was fulfilling this verse. That he was with, it was, was with a rich man in his death. Remember, this, these things took place 700 years before the actual, so this was written 700 years before these events. And Isaiah knew it. He was killed as a criminal, even though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The crucifixion speaks. The crucifixion speaks today. We're going to come back on Sunday to look at the, the final three verses of Isaiah 53. But in this fourth servant song, God is speaking. The witnesses are speaking. The redeemed are speaking. The crucifixion is speaking. Are you listening? Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, Lord, we thank you for the cross. Lord, we thank you that on that cross, our Lord Jesus, our Savior, suffered the punishment that we deserve. Lord, our sin is so great that though we were to stop sinning now and to live a million lifetimes, we could never pay back the debt that our guilt 
deserve. Lord, we can never pay back what you have done for us in Christ. Lord, we can only take up the cup of salvation and say, thank you. We will call upon your name, O Lord, for you are our Savior and you are our Deliverer. Lord, help us to see these things with spiritual eyes. Lord, help us to live lives that are changed by the understanding of these things. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ.